you may be, or if you're going, if you are time traveling and you're listening to us at some point in the future, uh, you are welcome here. We are going to continue our study of the book of Colossians that we've entitled Christ in You, the Gospel in Colossians. And we have, we have meandered our way down into chapter 2. We looked at the opening of the chapter last week, and we're going to jump right in where we picked off um, uh, where we picked off, I mean, where we ended last week, we're going to jump right on there uh, this week. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin, uh, Paul, we're going to look at Paul's uh, beginning to make an argument, make a case against what he can, is concerned might be something that could be a source of deception and distraction among the Colossian church. Remember that he's gotten reports. He hasn't been there, but they've responded to the gospel among the Gentiles that Paul has been proclaiming that that gospel is bearing fruit in their community because they are gaining a reputation of, as a community that loves well. But Paul is also aware that there is something that can threaten that move of grace and that love. You know, one of the things that I think is important for us to, to, to remember as we read through the scriptures, and again, we're going we're gonna to look at this specifically, why this is really important even when we come to a text like this. Um, and if, if I, uh, in my, if I miscommunicate and I'm obscure or difficult to understand, by all means, please give me a phone call and let's talk about it. I love to talk about this stuff. Uh, but you have to remember that evangelicalism is formed almost 2,000 years after the scriptures are written. And so the scriptures were not written for evangelicals. Evangelicals came out of a particular application and interpretation of the scriptures that evolved over time, but it's not written to evangelicals. And one of the things that I think is a challenge for us is, is that it's important to remember that the vast majority of the converts that we read about in the New Testament were converted from religion. Not hardly any of those people were converted from like some sort of system of unbelief or atheism. Now that may have been a religion expressed as paganism, um, or it may have been a religion expressed as Judaism, but the vast majority, and I'm, I'm saying vast majority because I haven't done the proper scholarship and looked to, to, to see if there's an exception to this rule, although I'll admit right now I'm not aware that there is one. The vast majority of converts, the people that get converted to following Jesus, are converted from religion. Now that's why it's a mistake to assume that the greatest enemy to our faith is sin. Because if you read the scriptures, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you will see the greatest, the greatest temptation to deception always comes from religious ideas who live somewhere around the cul-de-sac of our ideas of spirituality. They're not way away. They're very, very close and similar. The same was true in Paul's day. And although we're going to look at this so-called Colossian heresy, and, and, we're, and again, uh, we're not going to get into details of it today. It's still the setup. Next week, we'll start to get into the details of that. But what you're going to see, I'll give you a preview, is that this deception is rooted in religious practice not in the practice of unbelief. This is the thing that is potentially threatening to their faith that Paul is wanting to, uh, to write them about. And here's what Paul says in a nutshell. Here's the sermon. 
Religion will deceive you away from the gift of grace that you've been given, and the only way to, to resist it is to live a life of singular focus of being rooted and built up in Christ. It is by making Christ the centerpiece of one's life that one is safest from the deceptions of other religious ideas that would tend that that, that would cause you to doubt your temptation. And look, I mean, your, your identity. I don't have too much time to deal with this. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. You probably got the campers out at the lake and so forth. Um, and um, anyway, uh, but um, it, it's important. Uh, to remember, if we think back to original trauma, original temptation, it's in Genesis chapter 3. And, and, and that original trauma evolves from a questioning of Adam and Eve's identity and God's identity toward them. That's the first temptation, and that is always the temptation away from grace. It comes from religious conviction that causes us to condemn ourselves and doubt the victory that Christ has secured on our behalf and the complete reality of the new identity that we've been given in this new humanity that has been raised up with Christ. So that's, that's, that was the deception, deception from the beginning, and you move up towards scriptures all the way to the letters that we're reading, the same deception all the way up to 2020 in Bible Belt America. It is still the same potential deception. So, so we want to be aware of it and how this works. So we're just going to read verses 4 through 7, and then we're just going to walk through them. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him, being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So here we see at the very beginning of verse 4, Paul says, the reason why I'm saying all of this. Now, saying what? The reason why he has spent the previous part of the letter extolling in the highest terms possible the sovereignty and power and complete trustworthy victory of Christ over the cosmos is for this reason right here. So he has spent time, as we talked about last week, Colossians chapter 1, probably some of the verses of the highest Christology, which is a theological, um, a, a, a theological uh, category of, of, of discipline study that has to do about the doctrine of Christ. And that ver those verses have some of the highest verses of Christology in all of the New Testament. And Paul says, the reason why I'm doing this is because you have to understand everything was made by him, that all of creation is recreated in Christ, which again, we look we talked about that months ago when we looked at uh, Colossians chapter 1, where we see the languages used that's similar to, langu to the language in Genesis 1 and 2, where clearly Paul is making this, this identification that there's a new creation that happens in Christ, that there's a new humanity that's brought up with Christ, raised with him in heavenly places, as some of the other places in the New Testament will celebrate. And... Um, uh, uh, Paul says there's a reason for this. It's because if you don't focus and build your life around Christ, then religious systems will seek to deceive you away, to deceive you and rob you of the joy and the direction that God's new grace is intended to cause 
uh, that, that is intended to produce flourishing in our lives, the flourishing of shalom, which is the wholeness of the peace of God. And so he says the only antidote to that is to be focused on Christ. Now, this may be too early in the sermon to say something like this, but I do think that as we go from reading their story to our story, I think that we have to also say that sometimes there's religious ideology that tempts us away from our faithfulness of Christ. Sometimes as you grow, you have to make a decision, am I going to be faithful to Christ or be faithful to the system of Christianity that was passed down to me? Because that is going to be the ideology that is in closest proximity to our convictions. So in some ways, that is going to be the thing that we have to be most mindful of. So let's walk through this and see how Paul instructs him of this. So in, in commenting on this particular verse, um, I think N.T. Wright says it's best, and he says it this way. Paul does not say that the Colossians have already been deceived, but... From long experience, he knows that a work of grace is followed by an attack from the enemy, and that one regular form this attack may take is the clever, clever plausibility of teaching near enough to the truth to be apparently respectable and far enough away to be devastating in its effect on individuals and congregations. And some of you have shared your story with me about how God called you in an early age and how Christianity, uh, the Christianity that you were taught, had man-centered doctrines that were quite toxic and harmed your soul. And that part of your story and part of your testimony is how Christ was faithful first to deliver you of your sin and second to deliver you from your religion. Because that religion caused you to be someone who may have been a good representation of your religious ideology, but maybe you weren't a good representative of Christ. And so we are always evaluating whether or not our theology and spiritualities are bearing the fruit of faithfulness to, tr to Christ, or are they intended to just continue to perpetuate the life cycle of that ideology and that, indus and that discipleship industrial complex? And we have to be mindful of those realities because what Paul says that I don't want you to be deceived by arguments that sound reasonable. My friends among who are here this morning or online, if you are a conservative, I know that you spend a lot of your time and emotion getting angry about the ideologies of progressives. But I am going to tell you this, that is, should not be your primary concern. If you are deceived, it's not going to be from some cool progressive that has a clever turn of phrase. You know why? Because the right side of your brain is going to shut it down. If your ideology and your politics and your outlook is more progressive, you, are, you have made the conservatives your enemy, just in the same way as they made themselves, uh, they made you their enemy. And, 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 and you, you want to speak out against conservative toxic ideology and all that's fine. It has its place. But you have to understand that your distraction from Christ isn't going to come from conservative voices. 
If you were deceived from Christ, it's going to come from reasonable sounding arguments from more of the uh, 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 progressive ideology. And so when you hear conservative, the left part of your brain shuts that down. That's what I was trying to say earlier and be, cle and be clever. Um, but most of you missed it and I messed up the punchline. So, um, but, but you see what I'm saying is we, we really need to hear this because we spend time thinking that the deception is gonna come from a place that it's never gonna come. Because, because we've demonized those people, we've demonized that ideology, there's something in us that's de defensive and reactive, we're not gonna listen to that. So your deception's gonna come from the people you like, from the ideas that you like. It's gonna come from that voice that seems eminently reasonable. And Paul recognizes this, and this is what N.T. Wright is commenting on. Verse five and six, Paul writes, for I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. Now, there's so much good stuff in these two verses. We don't have time to get all into it, especially not on a lake weekend. But let's just take a quick moment to look at a few of these phrases. Verse 5, we can't spend a lot of time on. But what Paul is going to suggest is this, that there is a, there is a safety in Christian spirituality if, we're allow, if we will allow our mind to be well-ordered. So it does mean that in order to be faithful to Christ, there is this call for me to continue to grow and to learn and to reorder my thinking. And whenever I come to an order of thinking that I realize, wow, this seemed like a really good idea, but this really is not bearing fruit in the life of Christ, I'm going to move that around. I'm going to rearrange some things. So Paul says a well-ordered mind and a strong faith, but in who? In what? In ideology? In theology? No. What does he say? That you have to have a strong faith in Christ. A strong faith in Christ. Now, there is an idea, it's called um, ana anachronism. And an anachronism is, is an idea that, that, that it's, it's not a word we use a lot, but I think it's, it's a really important idea because all it means is you can't take an idea from one time period and then insert it into uh, another time period and it makes sense of your interpretation. So that sounds a little muddy. What, what I mean is this, stupid, simple thing. If we read in the scriptures, for example, that a group of people traveled from one city to the next, well, as we're reading and interpreting, and if the text doesn't say how they traveled, then as good interpreters of the Bible and, and theology nerds that we are, we want to get around and talk about it, we're free to speculate. Well, I don't know. I'm looking at the text, and I'm thinking about the culture, and maybe they traveled by camel. Well, I don't know. I'd like to produce an argument that says maybe they uh, traveled by donkey. And then someone says, well, actually, I think really the bulk of the evidence would show that probably the majority of them walked. That's fine. You can have that discussion. What you can't do is say, you know, I really think maybe one of them wrote a Vespa from one city to the other. Oh, I don't know if they wrote a Vespa. I'm kind of thinking that maybe they drove a Lincoln. 
Now, we wouldn't have that conversation, and why would we not have that conversation? Because we know as we're interpreting Scripture, we have to work with the ideas and the realities of the time in which it was, in which it was written and for, in order for us to comprehend it. So you can't take a modern idea or an idea that was developed further along in the history of, of ideas and insert it in a place where it doesn't belong. The reason why I say that is, this is the problem that we have whenever we read a verse like verse 6. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him. So we take a moment here to pause and ask, what does it mean to receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Well, we're all evangelicals, so we can pass this test. It means taking time to ask Jesus into your heart. Now, Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not being crank, cranky. I think that the imagery of that idea is beautiful. I, if we want to talk about conversion as that moment of revelation when we realize Christ was in us and Christ has been revealed in us as the way Paul talks about his conversion in the book of Galatians, and we want to use language like, and in that moment I just ask Christ to, to come into my heart and live and dwell and there is all this peace. Listen, I am not mocking or disparaging that idea. I think it is beautiful, but... That is not what Paul had in mind when he said, receive Jesus Christ, just as you receive Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. So what does it mean when he says, just as you receive Jesus as Lord, if it's not the modern idea of asking Jesus into my heart? Well, notice what Paul says. Look at the wording. Paul is emphasizing exactly how they received them. And just look at the text and that sentence. How is it that they received him? I'll give you a hint. There's a two-little word, as, in front of it. As Lord. This is the emphasis that Paul is making. Is just as you receive Jesus as Lord, in order to be free of deceptive, reasonable-sounding arguments, you must continue to live with Jesus as Lord. And this is really important because we don't do a great job of casting a vision of Christian spirituality that is an invitation of a journey that you, that you pursue throughout the rest of your life. Most of us say that the beginning of the journey already meets the end goal, which the end goal is now you know you'll go to heaven. But if it's supposed to be a beginning of a journey in which God faithfully walks with you for the rest of the days of your life, every single moment working to conform you to the image of his son, then we understand that sinner's prayer moment is just the beginning and initiation point of a lifelong journey. It is not like, okay, now I've got my, my soul's taken care of, my eternity's taken care of. Now I'll get on with another ideology that can guide me throughout the rest of the days of my life. That is a deception. The idea is, is that once we recognize Jesus as Lord, we continue this adventure of exploring what that exactly means. In particular, the proclamation that Paul specifically has, which is Jesus Christ is Lord and he lives inside you as the hope of glory. So this is what Paul's pointing to. Typically, the word received simply meant accepting teaching from one person to the next or accepting teaching from one generation to the next. 
So in this case, it is the celebration of the Colossians receiving or accepting the proclamation of the revelation that Jesus Christ is Lord, and among you Gentiles, he lives in you as the hope of glory. So therefore, it's as though Paul is singing with that statement, just as you have received the proclamation that the resurrected Christ is Lord of all, so continue to live in that revelation. And in fact, if you look in just a second or you drop your eyes down to verse 7, this idea is further emphasized in the very next verse because Paul actually says, instead of using the phrase, receive Jesus Christ as Lord, he actually uses the phrase, just as you were taught. Thus, Paul is referring to accepting the revelation that Jesus is the living Christ who is Lord. Jesus, in the words of Paul in the book of Colossians, is God's image. Jesus is God's wisdom. Jesus is God's mystery. Jesus is Lord. In fact, this really is the three-word summary of what it means to be a Christian. This is the three-word summary of the gospel. The gospel in one word is Jesus. The gospel in three words is Jesus is Lord. In fact, this idea Jesus is Lord was the baptismal confession that converts would make as they were initiated into the community through baptism. The proclamation they were making is that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because this word Lord uh, Kyrios simply means a person exercising absolute ownership rights. And so when we get baptized, the reason why they would make the confession, Jesus is Lord, because in that moment we are symbolizing, in this moment I am choosing to die to my ego. I am choosing to die to the truth that I've been living, which is already is Lord. That old man is dead. He comes up, and the new man says, Oh, I get it. Artie's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And now I am free from this ridiculous burden of trying to live my life as though I were him. I'm free. Jesus, well, that's the symbolism here. And so this is the confession that would be made is that Jesus is Lord. And he goes on to say, continue to walk in him. This doesn't mean never stop going to church. What's, what it means is continue to follow Jesus as your Lord throughout all the days of your life. Walk is a verb. Walk is not a noun. And oh my goodness, I think that we would transform evangelicalism in a single generation if we would realize that our faith is a verb. It's not intended to be a noun. But we wrap it up. It's just a projection of an identity that we want to pose in front of everyone else. It, and therefore, it has to be defined by the specifics of what we believe and what we don't believe. And then we have to decide who's in or out based on whether or not they are in the place in their journey where they have the cognitive ability to agree with us or if they are still in their cognitive ignorance and they disagree with us. And so then they're in and out. But that's all making your faith a noun. 
But this idea of walking is not a noun. I mean, it can be used as a noun, obviously, but that's not how it's used here. It's a verb. It's a movement. It's something that is alive. The goal is not to be a good Christian. The goal is to live the life of Christ. Now, they can be the same thing, but they're not always the same thing. And when you have to choose, I suggest you choose faithfulness to Christ rather than faithfulness to an organization, institution, or ideology. To walk in him means to live a life that reflects the reality that Jesus is Lord. In fact, this word walk was used to refer to not belief systems, but ethical conduct. Therefore, to continue to walk means to live a life that reflects the reality that Jesus is Lord. The fruit of faithfulness to Christ is revealed in how we live, not in what we say we believe. The fruit of faithfulness to Christ is revealed in how we live, not in what we say we believe. So the question is, how well-ordered is your mind? And what does that even mean? Does that mean a well-ordered mind is one who believes all the right doctrines and all the right categories of what's acceptable and unacceptable? I mean, that's an outworking of our faith, but that's, is that what he's talking about? No. Again, it's not a system of beliefs. It is about the source of the power that animates our soul and therefore motivates our living. And so when we, when, we, um, when we talk about a well-ordered mind, the well-ordered mind should be understood, I think, first of all, immediately in the context of Colossians, which is this. A well-ordered mind is a mind that has responded to the mystery that has been kept secret for the ages, but now has been revealed. What is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Cultivating a Christ-in-me-aware mind is the only way to experience obedience as a fruit rather than a discipline. So obedience is a fruit of my growing in my awareness that Christ is in me as the hope of glory. Now, this is really important because most of us think of obedience as gritting our teeth and disciplining ourselves to do something that we don't want to do. So now we have tricked ourselves and we've done ourselves a terrible disservice because when we hear words like obey, obedience, immediately what I think of is feeling guilty about needing to do more than what I'm doing or feeling guilty about needing to stop doing something that I'm doing. But that, that, that is not the, that's not the purpose of obedience. Obedience doesn't change who you are. It just reveals who you are. And so when I approach it from that perspective, that's what keeps me free from turning cause of obedience into shackles of legalism. As you cultivate a Christ-in-me-aware mind, you will be empowered simply to live from who you are rather than who you ought to be. Now think about that. The majority of your life as you pursued Christian discipline, has it been a pursuit to try to be something you ought to be? Or has it been a joyful pursuit of growing and understanding and living out of who Christ has recreated you to be? 
because those two motives are extremely different. When I seek to follow Christ out of a place of hating who I am, I am constantly going to be shackled by a weight around my neck that makes it very difficult. When I seek to follow Christ because I'm affirming the revelation that whatever is true of Christ is true of me because Christ is in me as the hope of glory, then I realize the pursuit of knowledge and understanding and growth intellectually and spiritually and my call to obedience is for the purpose of manifesting who I've already become. I'm not trying to be someone I am not. I am trying to live according to the true nature that has been given to me by Christ as my birthright. So how do we obey the call to walk in him? Well, the only way to be faithful to Christ is to spend your life ordered around being rooted in Christ. That's what Paul says. Verse seven says, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. There is our summary, um, um, how to respond, the, the, the four steps to a life of obedience right here all in this verse. See, we cannot continue to walk in him if we are not continually being rooted in him and built up in him. And we become rooted and built up in him as we are established in our faith. This is all, this is not clever me. This is just looking at what's in the text here. We become established in our faith by committing to growing and learning. It's why Paul says, as you were taught. But the motive that drives our pursuit of spiritual growth must be gratefulness, joy for who we are and who God's made us to be. I know this is probably an overused illustration, certainly by me, but it's one of the most recent and, and um, uh, clear examples in my own life. Uh, as many of you know, I haven't been very, I haven't been shy about the fact that uh, uh, one of the weaknesses of my flesh, I mean, it's not yeah, do I like fried chicken and pizzas? Sure, I do. But really the truth is, is throughout the years, especially in growing up in legalistic churches, we couldn't have any alcohol or nicotine. We could have some caffeine, but here's the thing we could always do. We could eat whatever we wanted. And, and so all that we were doing is we were just making sure that the evangelical idols were narrowed to places that were more acceptable than others. I don't pretend that my idol was any healthier or better than, say, turning to meth because the way it was used in my own life. And so, and so, so food then became the thing that I could do for immediate comfort of my flesh and get my mind off things. And then, you know, uh, just, you know, you've all done it, eating yourself into intoxication, basically, you know, where you got to pop open a button and just lean back and pat yourself. Now, over time, one to 40, which I call in my personal biography, the eating years, um, because I could pretty much eat and drink whatever I wanted with very little consequences, other than maybe putting me in the bad, bad mood because of uh, my blood sugar or whatever, but by and large, but then all of a sudden, it's like you reach some point in your 40s where you're just going to the doctor for routine things and, you know, high five and, you know, I was 
friends with my doctor, so we would chit-chat and go on. But then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, 17 things are going to break down in your body all at once. And you're like, geez, I wish I wouldn't have even come. I, I came for problem A, and you've, you've covered problem A through P. Um, and, and so you guys probably know that. I mean, it's just this weird all at once. It's this breakdown. And so, so finally... After years of trying to motivate myself, I mean, I did. I mean, I did try to perfect, uh, you know, the body that is already Favre and how it's presented to the world. And I would do these things where, you know, read things. You should put up posters of people who work out and so forth, where you can see them. And you try to motivate yourself and so forth. But really, those things always just serve to mock me. But I tried very hard to go through these seasons. In fact, I even won a weight loss challenge one year. Thank you. And, um, but here's the thing. Recently, I started slowly getting healthier physically and mentally. Very slowly. Not with proclamations that I put on Facebook. There were little, it was a little subtle change that has started happening that has started making me a healthy person. And as I reflected on it, here's what I realized. All of those other years, all those other programs, all those attempts of faithfulness, I pursued them because I hated myself. I would look at who I'd become or I would look at the consequences of my choices, some of them that were very, very close to irreversible, and then I would just feel guilt and shame and embarrassment and just like an idiot. And so out of that hatred for myself, I would strive to pursue a better discipline so that I could become a better person. And it would fail, 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 and fail. The only thing that has changed this time is someone told me, why don't you just do and eat those activities and foods that are willing to love you back? Now, I know that sounds silly. It sounds simplistic. It profoundly changed everything because suddenly I started pursuing health out of gratitude for my life and out of a gratefulness of who I was and who God made me to be. I don't need some stupid little picture of some magazine that tells me what a real man should look like. All I have to do is affirm the gift that I've been given in Christ. And as I began to like that guy, and as I began to actually start to love that guy, I am deeply motivated to make choices that are in keeping with better health for that guy. And now it's sustainable. The same is true. Why are you pursuing Christian spirituality? Is it because you hate yourself and you're trying to make yourself be someone else? My friends, it'll never work. Now we do it well because we will affirm you enough to keep you going right? Like, the, like, why does anybody play golf? You ever play golf? It's terrible. It's an awful thing. And, and, and now, I enjoyed it a little bit because the last time I played, my dad always paid the green fee. And then in my 30s, I went and my dad wasn't with me and I had to cough up the money for that green fee. And I'm like, okay, I already know this is going to be a miserable existence. Now I'm going into it realizing I just had to spend half my paycheck to go out there and make myself miserable. But if you're in a group of guys and you hit that one stroke finally out of all 18 hoes that is just near perfection, I'll be darned if you won't come back, open up the wallet, and keep coming back. There is something about the power of the near miss that keeps us going. 
This is how Christian discipleship in modern America works. We always keep giving you the near miss. I mean, you, we, you, you get enough, and then you, but, but there's, you can never, ever be at the place where it's actually working. Now, I know this sounds bizarre, but if it actually worked, you'd quit coming, and you'd quit buying the books. This is why we keep listening to the podcast and keep buying the books and keep being involved because the system has to hold you the promise that maybe it's working but never quite get you there. And that's what keeps you on the hamster wheel of religious legalism. But in reality, there's a, there's a way to step off of all of that. And that is to say, your life is not about perfection. It is about walking in intimacy with Jesus moment by moment. Now, all of a sudden, I'm cleared away from those other things, and I make radical relationality and intimacy with God the, the driving force of my life. And you know what? The more I hang out with Jesus, the more I start to look, at, look like Jesus. And all of a sudden, from within, that transformation takes place. And so now we're moved, we're overflowing with gratitude. This is why, my friends... The primary discipline of the Christian life is to remember who you are. It's the hardest thing. It's the primary thing. That's the goal when we come to Bible study or worship or prayer is that the goal is positioning ourselves in the presence of the Spirit so that we can daily practice remembering who we are. Obedience does not change who we are. Obedience reveals who we are. So the choice before us every moment of every day is whether we will live from the false self or the true self. And my friends, you cannot be ignorant of this reality. The false self gets its identity clues from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The true self takes its identity from the tree of life. Those are always the two sources Am I going to project and live from my false who I self or from my true self in Christ? I didn't put this on the overhead, nor is it on your notes. But turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It was one of those days where we had a good day yesterday, and I went to bed um, early, and I was sleeping, and, and, and as I've been opened that, you know, my struggles with insomnia, which ironically are getting better now that I'm learning to like this guy. Um, but I did wake up because I just felt we just really, this, this message wasn't done yet. I mean, I thought it was done Thursday afternoon or Friday morning, but it just wasn't quite done yet. So I got up this morning and I was thinking and I was praying. I want you to take a look at Ephesians chapter four, verses 22 through 24. I believe this is either from the Christian Standard Bible or the ESV. To put off your old self, which is the false self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, look at this. This is the phrase that hit me this morning. Created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I bet you anything, if I did a survey, every head bowed and every eye closed and ask if you could immediately think of something for which you are ashamed of yourself. And I've done this in other contexts. 
I bet you almost immediately everyone could raise their hands. But if I were to say, I want you to raise your hand if you can honestly affirm that who you are has been created in the likeness of God and who you are has been created in true righteousness and holiness. Man, those hands are slow to come up. That's a much harder thing to accept. But here's what Paul says. You have to believe that's who you are before you start seeing proof that that's who you are. That's the great trick. I have to affirm it while I still feel like a loser. I have to affirm it while I still feel like a, the worst of sinners. I have to begin to possibly believe that what God says about me is more powerful than what my behavior has testified to and that maybe there's something for me that will empower me to rise above that and to bear the fruit of a different kind of behavior. But that comes from recognizing that I have a new self that every moment I can choose to put on and this new self has been created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the commands of Scripture are not a reminder of who we are not. The commands of Scripture reveal who we are. Remember who you are so that you can become who you are. That is the paradox of New Testament spirituality. Remember who you are so that you become who you are. But if you start out thinking you're going to become something you're not, then you will live a life of perpetual unbelief because God calls us to trust that reality before we start to experience that reality. So I trust it. There's lots of evidence against it, but the truth is, I started my day as always. Here I am, Lord, your beloved. I am the beloved of God. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. Christ is one with God. I am one with God. And what I've noticed is that every once in a while, I actually start to believe it. And when I do, I actually start to act like it. And when I do, both me and the people around me are touched by the life of God. It's a much superior way of living. It's a lot less anxiety producing because all it is is learning how to rest in who I've become. So what does Paul say? He says, the way that you constantly guard yourself against deception is by making it a habit to constantly re-Jesus your faith. You can re-Jesus your faith in part by the Christ confession I just shared with you and I shared with you lots of times. You can re-Jesus your faith by reading scripture. You can re-Jesus your faith by praying the prayer of St. Patrick's breastplate. Or here's a really great one. You could re-Jesus your faith by making it a habit to every day read some portion of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as you do, Turn it into prayer. Make it a dialogue with your Lord. Walk in Christ. Be rooted in Christ. Be built up in Christ. Be established in faith in Christ. And overflow with gratitude for Christ. Would you all stand with me? We have communion stations on the outside edges of the, of the auditorium. You're welcome to get communion elements and rejoice that this is the last day that you'll have to fiddle with those goofy ones. We're starting the, the go back to the old way next week. Um, also, would the prayer team come forward up here? Would you? And, and so as we get ready to close, we just want to create some space 
at the end of our services so that if you need someone to pray with you about anything, we just want to be present to stand around you and support you in that way.